This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. An organization calling itself Jane's Revenge claimed responsibility for the arson and vandalism of an anti-abortion group's offices in Madison. A reporter for the investigative publication Bellingcat tweeted today that an anonymous source shared a statement from Jane's Revenge claiming responsibility. The group stated demands that included dis- the disbanding of anti-abortion groups, reported the Wisconsin State Journal, which could not independently verify the anonymous source. Madison police and the FBI are investigating the arson and vandalism. A Dane County judge ruled that a law passed by the Republican-controlled state legislature in 2018 violated the state's separation of power doctrine. Judge Susan Crawford ruled that the laws which gave the legislature more power in settlement agreements initiated by the state attorney general's office were unconstitutional. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, these provisions were passed by the legislature in a lame duck session in 2018. This followed the election of Governor Tony Evers and Attorney General Josh Call, both Democrats, but before they took office. In Crawford's decision, she wrote that these provisions would provide a veto mechanism without a check on the legislature. The decision is currently on hold pending a request from the legislature. A union organizer for a Starbucks in central Wisconsin says he was fired a few days after his store voted to unionize. Colton Gosnell, who helped organize the Plover Starbucks, claimed company policies were selectively enforced against him after the shop's employees voted to unionize in a 7-5 to ballot. Gosnell claimed that he was never written up or warned before being fired, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The National Labor Relations Board recently filed a complaint against Starbucks for allegedly retaliating against employees who organized in New York. Federal law prohibits companies from retaliating against union organizing. Researchers at UW-Madison published a study that found a second wolf hunt last year in Wisconsin would have lowered wolf population levels to a concerning level. If a second wolf hunt had been held, the population could have become extirpated in the state. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, hunters killed 218 wolves in less than three days in the February 2021 hunt. The study built a model using two methods from the State Department of Natural Resources that estimates wolf population. Some researchers, though, believe the study assumes a high estimate of wolf mortality. The DNR is expected to release its population estimates for this past winter in the coming weeks. MTI, the Madison Teachers Union, held a rally outside of Wright Middle School yesterday to pressure the Madison Metropolitan School District for better pay. The Capital Times reports MTI members are putting public pressure on the district to demand a $5 increase in hourly pay for educational and security assistance. MMSD is currently budgeting a 2% increase in wages for the cost of living. It's also budgeted an additional average 2% increase for some based on time employed, but not all staff qualify for this increase. The district already faces staffing shortages, and some speakers at the rally said not providing a $5 raise would make the shortages worse. It's another Whopper River meeting for the Madison Common Council tonight, as alders take up zoning, medians, and so much more. The council is slated to move forward to approve funding for siting possible locations for an Amtrak station in the city as part of a project to bring passenger rail service to Madison. A good amount of zoning issues are also on the agenda, including a resolution to establish parameters for a new city program to develop accessory dwelling units. Meanwhile, zoning changes for mixed neighborhood districts are also up for discussion. Traffic medians will also make an appearance as the city decides whether to convert a small percentage of medians to concrete and or turf due to budget constraints. All that and so much more is up at tonight's meeting, which begins in just a few tonight at 6.30. 
And now for today's COVID-19 numbers, there were 2,008 confirmed new COVID cases reported across Wisconsin yesterday as transmission continues to rise statewide. Currently, around 12.5% of COVID tests have been positive over the past week, another figure that is rising. The number of deaths due to the disease is also on the rise again as the state reported another six fatalities yesterday. Here in Dane County, there were 301 confirmed cases of the virus reported yesterday, with 26 people currently hospitalized. There were no new deaths from the virus in Dane County reported yesterday. And now, on to today's top stories. Regulating firearms typically happens at the state and federal levels and not by city governments. However, a new resolution for the city of Madison could help bolster broader control gun control efforts. WORT producer Nate Weggehout has more. Last night, the Board of Health for Madison and Dane County passed a resolution that would allow the city of Madison to help advocate for gun control reforms. With the proposal, the city would be able to lend both its name and statistics to lawsuits brought by other units of government regarding gun violence and regulations. The city itself has a small amount of control in gun reform, limited mostly to forbidding concealed carry in city buildings. Broader efforts are primarily the business of state and federal authorities. But the resolution would allow the city to sign on to cases related to gun regulation. The move is not necessarily unique. The city of Madison has done the same for other broad issues like immigration and elections. But it does demonstrate the city's official stance. City attorney Michael Haas brought the resolution forward. He says that it's a way of working around state-imposed limitations. As we're trying to brainstorm about you know, what can the city do in a legal environment where we are constrained by state statutes and how much regulation the city can can uh, implement on its own, we thought, well, at least this would be one step that we could take to show the city of Madison's uh, support for uh, regulation of firearms and try attempting to reduce firearms violence. Madison Mayor Santia Rhodes-Conway and Alders Yannette Figueroa Cole and Lindsay Lummer are sponsors of the resolution. According to the Madison Police Department, weapons-related violations increased by 37 percent from 2018 to 2021. Additionally, Madison saw 10 homicides last year, tying its record high, though the total number of incidents where shots were fired dipped down. The resolution cites research conducted by Every Town for Gun Safety, a gun control advocacy organization largely financed by Michael Bloomberg. According to their research, as cited in the legislation, Wisconsin has the 34th highest rate of gun violence last year, and nearly three-quarters of all homicides in the state last year involved a firearm. It also cites statistics from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence that found more than half of domestic partner homicides in 2019 involved a gun. In 2019, Governor Tony Evers called a special session to take up his plan to expand background checks and red flag laws in the state, but the Republican-led legislator took no action. Earlier this year, Republican lawmakers passed a series of bills to further weaken gun laws in Wisconsin, but those bills were all quickly vetoed by Governor Evers. Mayor Rhodes-Conway says that this is a public health issue. She adds that if the resolutions are adopted, the Board of Health for Madison and Dane County would assist with re- Research. What likely would happen if this resolution passes, and I, I do think it will, um, it would it authorizes myself and the city attorney to choose to sign on to this type of litigation, 
Um, and then we would, uh, you know, so the city attorney's office would really sort of be the point in that case. But yes, they might turn to public health, to the Board of Health, to the police department, to other agencies um, for information and data, particularly about the impacts of gun violence here in Madison, and to be able to communicate that uh, in the context of the litigation. Haas continues. I think our office and the mayor's office and the council recognize that uh, that uh, violence in the community is a public health issue and firearm regulation is a part of that. And to the extent that you know firearms contribute to uh, violence that we have in our community, we want to try to explore ways to reduce that. Haas further notes that he is also looking at other ways the city can maneuver around state laws to enact some form of gun control here in Madison. Rhodes-Conway says that this resolution can help lead to greater steps at a federal level. Big picture context here is that um, in Madison, like in many cities, gun violence is a real problem. We are doing our best here at the city level to take a multifaceted approach to dealing with it. But the real solutions likely lie at the state and federal level. And so it's important for us to be able um, to work on this issue at the state and federal level and through the courts as well, so that we're really, uh, you know, taking the most comprehensive approach that we as a city can to reducing gun violence. The resolution will now head to the Public Safety Review Committee tomorrow night and is expected to go before the full council at the end of the month. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. Dane County and much of southern Wisconsin are currently under a tornado watch as a warm front has made its way into the area. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has more on what to expect. Today, I received a message from the sun, and after reading it, I was enlightened. Warm weather in Madison is finally here. Weather in Madison went from freezing to incredibly warm with tornado watches. Temperatures reached 90 degrees today with a low of 66 degrees. The heat index is sitting at 94 degrees, making it feel much warmer. The historical average is 66.9 degrees, so we are way above what typical temperatures are. Maybe we are just making up for all the warm weather we lost. Madison is currently under a tornado watch until 9 p.m., which was announced by the National Weather Service. The mean layer of convection available potential energy, or CAPE, shear, which is a variation in wind speed and direction, and mid-level lapse rates, which identify regions where deep convection is probable, can be concerning. These factors are what produce severe storms, large hail, and damaging winds. As storms are developing, it may lead to a tornado, hence why there is a watch. The National Weather Service announced a watch for 43 counties in Wisconsin as possible storms might roll through southern and central Wisconsin. Although the main concern is damaging winds and hail, tornadoes are not ruled out for tonight. There is a 40% chance for storms to develop in Dane County, with the risk increasing as the time moves forward into the evening. With more watches and warnings being very possible with unstable conditions coming through, here's what to remember. Get to the lowest level of your home or apartment and stay away from windows. If you do not have a basement, get to the lowest level provided and get into a bathroom, closet, or center hallway. Get under something sturdy. Grab blankets or mattresses to protect yourself from any debris that might come through. If available, bring an emergency kit and a phone number and address of family members and friends both in and out of the area. Be sure to keep devices charged up and even a radio. If you see a dark or green colored sky, low-laying clouds, large hail, 
or a roar that sounds like a freight train, take cover immediately. Be alert during watches, take cover during warnings. Even when conditions don't seem bad, if there is a warning, take cover. It is always better to be safe. After 10 p.m. tonight, moving into Wednesday, there should be more stable conditions. There could be a time frame where fog is present tomorrow. Winds will be coming from the south, which will bring more warm weather. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday are all expected to be in the mid to upper 80s with possibility for showers and thunderstorms. With your WORT weather report, I'm producer Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Madison Teachers, Inc., the union representing Madison's teachers, announced today that they are suing the Madison Metropolitan School District. The issue, an unfilled open records request. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with attorney Lester Pines, who is representing the union about this lawsuit. So, Lester, just to start things off here, why is Madison Teachers, Inc. suing the Madison School District? What's what's going on there? Madison Teachers, uh asked for documents about health insurance contracts and other related materials uh, on November 3rd of 2021. Uh, the statutes require a municipality or a school district or the state when uh, one of those entities receives an open records request to fulfill the request as soon as practicable. Uh, the district has, as of today, um, we're in early May, has not yet produced the documents. Um, it did say that it wanted $350 uh, paid uh, for searching for the documents. That was paid on February 1st. Uh, we're still over three months since they received that money. They still haven't produced the documents. These are not confidential documents or documents that are subject to significant redactions. Uh, they just have us waiting in line, and that is against the law. So, and now, avid listeners of WORT News will know that we have, uh, we talk open records every other Thursday with our transparency mm-hmm. talk feature, but mm-hmm. I want to ask you a little bit, why is this such an issue for MMSD to wait six months to send out these records? Why, why is this uh, an issue? Well, Madison Teachers uh, represents a vast majority of the employees of the Madison Metropolitan School District. Uh, and the district has uh, uh, been sending a lot of signals uh, to the union that it uh, uh, wants to be less and less cooperative about even the most mundane matters. 
Uh, and uh, that is a very destructive position for the school district. Uh, and consequently, uh, the union has determined that uh, we needed to take steps to make the district do what it is supposed to do. Uh, but it's more than just that. It's that any citizen who wants information from the school district or any entity that wants information from the school district should get the information in accordance with the statutes, which require school districts to act promptly. If the district doesn't have enough people to deal with the various requests it gets, then it can add a few people to deal with a backlog. But a requester is not supposed to wait over six months for documents that are easily accessible. And do you know, they so MTI paid $350 to the Madison School District earlier right. this year, and they said it was to cover time, cover right. hours for staff members. Yeah, to, they said like five, like five hours. Yeah, five hours for two people to look for these records. What These records that they're looking for, did, have they talked to you or have they talked to MTI about why it's taking them so long to find what seems to be fairly, you know, certificates of insurance with uh, all of the health insurance areas and things like that. Have they communicated to you why it's taking this long? They have not. And they just haven't produced the records. And then, so I want to ask is why these records, I mean, these seem like they're relatively mundane records and have, right. so is this sort of par for the course for them in your experience or... Uh, so they haven't really talked to you and said why. So I, yeah, what is what is your thoughts on that? Well, if there was some difficulty uh, in retrieving the records, uh, then they could have talked to us and explained what the problem is. They could have uh, produced records uh, sequentially, so to speak, that as they uh, found a record that was responsive, they would have produced it. Uh, they have been paid the money that they wanted to have staff conduct the search for the records. Uh, that staff must have been doing something. Uh, they could have communicated with us, but they've chosen not to do it. And, uh, you know, it can be a cooperative thing with a government entity uh, about how they are producing the records and the timeliness of the producing of the records. But there's been no communication from the school district uh, since February 1st when they got the check. And now what happens now? How long does MMSD have to respond? And then what sort of happens after that? Um, if they've been served with the lawsuit today, then they have 20 days from today to respond. And then what happens? Uh, well, do they, what's, what sort of response? Well, then, then we, the response is to either uh, contest that they are in violation of the law or to admit that they're in violation of the law. If they contest that they're in violation of the law, we'll have a very prompt hearing before a circuit court judge who will determine whether or not they have met their obligations under the statute, which I am confident a judge would conclude that they have not met their obligations. Now, open records. And then, then the judge will order them to documents forthwith. And yeah, obviously, open records, kind of a big topic here in Wisconsin at the moment. So I just mm -hmm. want to sort of finish things up. Do you have any final thoughts of anything 
uh, about this that you'd like to share with me? Anything that we didn't really get to in this uh, conversation? Well, I would like to say that considering that my partner, Krista Westerberg, who is an expert in open records law, along with our uh, associate, Leslie Freehill, uh, they have been uh, uh, representing an organization called American Oversight, uh, which uh, has sought to get the records, the open records from uh, Gableman's so-called investigation. Uh, and so the legislature, which of course passed the uh, open records law decades ago, and the Republican leadership of the legislature is setting an extraordinarily poor example for every other government entity in the state by uh, not producing records in that case and uh, by being held in contempt for their failure to do so. So this is, uh, I, I, I'm not going to call it a crisis, but we have to make sure that these um, uh, municipalities and uh, counties and state entities follow the law. Uh, and the, the thing is, you know, if they, if they are found not to follow the law, then they have to spend the taxpayers' money to pay for the lawyers who bring these lawsuits. Um, and uh, that's a waste of the taxpayers' money when what they really should be doing is following the law and producing records when they're requested. I've been talking with Lester Pines of the Pinesbach Law Firm, who is representing MTI as they sue the Madison School District over an unfulfilled records request that they have waited over six months for. Lester, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. Great. You're welcome. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call gets ready for finals and looks back at this school year. Wildlife Weekly goes on a wild goose chase to rehome a gosling. And radio astronomy leaps from science fiction to a type of science reality. But now we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. With the final Tuesday of the semester approaching, Cardinal Call comes to a close for the spring. As producer Hope Carnop and Daily Cardinal editor-in-chief Addison Lathers look back at what happened at UW-Madison over the past school year. 130 years. 130 years old we are, and I think we look pretty good. Hello and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by our outgoing editor-in-chief, Addison Lathers, to recap the 2021-22 academic year on campus and at the Cardinal. 
Thank you for joining us, Addison. Obviously, I'm not going to miss my last opportunity as EIC to be on work with you, Hope. In your opinion, what were some of the biggest news stories and cultural moments that we covered at the Cardinal this year? Wow. Well, obviously, we had our largest freshman class ever, which put a ton of strain on existing students, the already ripe staffing shortages at dining halls, as well as UW housing. We also had the iconic announcement from Chancellor Becky Blank, purple jacket and all, that she would be leaving UW-Madison and going to Northwestern. Well, our our volleyball team won the NCAA championships. Uh, There was the free speech survey, survey debacle, which caused quite the controversy, if you remember, as well as some spontaneous quits. Uh, Most recently, we learned more about the potential future of the Zoe Bayless co-op, as it will be torn down soon and replaced by Levy Hall in the coming years. So we had a very full year. Looking at the year ahead, what do you anticipate will be some of the major stories on the horizon that will affect UW-Madison? So looking forward, we will definitely be reporting on uh, wage increases on campus. Currently, our student government is fighting for 15, but there's a lot of other stuff happening too. So our future chancellor will have to deal with a heap of issues, problems that have never been resolved. Off the top of my head, the Wisconsin State Journal's education reporter, Kelly Meyerhofer, recently put out a series of articles on academic abuse happening at UW-Madison. So there's a lot of institutional problems there that allow for these professors to go unchecked. Those will have to be resolved. The free speech survey got kicked next year, so that's on the horizon. And also, we have an election coming up. We started this academic year in a much different place in terms of COVID-19. How has that situation evolved over the course of the year and where are we at now? I would call it like a hesitant relaxation. Like we started out our year, I didn't let anyone come into the office until they'd gotten their COVID test after they had moved in. It was a similar situation after those first few football games, and we just kept seeing numbers go up and up and up. It was like, oh, you can't come into the office unless you're vaccinated and you got a recent COVID test. Since then, we've definitely, you know, had the opportunity to chill a little bit as our case numbers went down. You know, we've been unmasked in the office since the university told us we could be unmasked. And, you know, it feels right now we're in kind of a place of, you know, we feel safe, we feel good. We haven't had any situations um, at the Daily Cardinal. And, you know, I like to be optimistic about it. I think two of our biggest accomplishments this year were our action projects. Can you describe what we created for each of those projects? Yes. So in the fall, we had our student living issue, which was a collaboration with the Pointer Institute. And that looked at how students affect you know, their greater surrounding communities, our impact on Madison, on Dane County. And then there was the identity issue that was this past semester, we took a moment to really give students a break, you know, and celebrate ourselves, our neighbors, our peers. We looked at the resurgence of Pride Prom. We also talked to Native American students on campus, you know, why are there so few, the issues they face, their financial situations, if they feel seen. Our arts editor, Seamus, also attended some student-run and led open mic nights and looked at, you know, the local talent. There were a ton of really great, uplifting, cool stories, and that is on our website if anyone wants to check it out. By the way, both of those issues also sponsored by the Cap Times Evju Foundation, so shout out Evju. Shifting gears to the Cardinal itself, we celebrated a pretty big milestone in April. Can you describe the anniversary celebration that we held that weekend? 
130 years. 130 years old we are, and I think we look pretty good for it. You, you, you wouldn't look at us today and say, oh, they're a, run, they're a rundown student newspaper. No, we're just as vibrant and crazy and, you know, we're, we're still out here doing what we do. And I think that anniversary celebration really solidified that for all of us. You know, our current staff got to talk to editors as far back as like, you know, the 60s, the 50s. And they as well got to come into our office and look at how we operate and how we're doing in the day to day now. And I think it was a moment for us all to come together and just be optimistic for the future. I think we're going to be around for, you know, maybe another hundred years, hopefully. We also put out a special issue for that anniversary weekend. What were some of the stories in that issue that you thought represented the way that the Cardinal has evolved over the years and the direction that is headed? So our feature story for that issue was simply titled, you know, we're still here. I think that this past year when I made the announcement that we were moving from a weekly newspaper to a monthly, I think that, you know, put the fear of God in some people. And it definitely, some of our alumni, you know, worried them. Like, is has our name been tarnished? Are they changing too much? What are these young kids doing with our very, you know, esteemed newspaper? And, you know, that article, I think, really served to like calm their nerves. You know, we haven't sold out, we're still here. And then we had some other, you know, fluffier stories about, you know, Cardinal couples. Scott Gerard and Abigail Becker, two previous Daily Cardinal editor-in-chiefs, got married last year. So we had a little feature story on them and all the grilled cheeses they've shared in Daily Cardinal office over the years. Um, And then we had some features on Cardinal alumni that have gone on to do really cool stuff, like the cartoonist John Kovalik, um, Stephen Thompson with NPR. We just talked to a bunch of really cool people for it, and and I really like how it came together, and I know for a fact that our staff is proud of that one. Something I get asked a lot about is our relationship with the Badger Herald. Do you care to speak on that topic and maybe recap how our annual softball face-off went? It's so funny because this is a question that will never die because I think the concept of a campus with two student newspapers is so foreign. I was actually on the phone with the Washington Post's Catherine Rample the other day talking to her before she was coming to Madison to speak at a forum. And she asked me because she had just been interviewed by the Badger Herald for it. She was like, I didn't realize there were two of you. Like, what's the difference? And I had to, you know, go through our history, explain, you know, how we have been here for, you know, as long as you can possibly imagine and how the Badger Herald sprung up a little bit more recently during the Vietnam War. And she thought it was very interesting. And I don't know, I think a lot of people are just kind of confused, but also intrigued by the concept. Um, Right now, I would say we're not in any means like collaborating. You'll never see us hanging out in each other's office, but it's we know we exist with each other. We have fun. And like you said, we have our annual softball game. We crushed them last year. <laughs> we didn't quite get them this year. And that's that's all I'll say on the topic. That is all I'll say. Mm-hmm. Looking back at your time at the Cardinal, what have you learned about being a reporter and specifically a student reporter? I would say that as far as concrete knowledge, Communications people are your friends, the Stratcom people in your classes, you know, they're the people that one day they'll get you the source that you need. They'll be there to help you write a story. But as far as like bigger picture stuff, you know, be patient with yourself. I think that's one thing I've learned. I came into this thinking that being a journalist was always, you know, grind, 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 work, 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 be calling people 24-7. What I've actually learned is that some of the greatest stories come from just taking a moment 
reflecting, thinking how you can make something new and interesting and how you can really appeal to readers, how you can get sources interested in the story you are trying to tell. And it's all about being patient with yourself too, because let's face it, burnout is a huge problem these past years, especially for journalists. And there won't be any of us left if we don't take the time to really sit back and appreciate ourselves. Looking back at your entire time spent at the Cardinal, are there any memories or specific moments that stand out to you either this year or in the past couple of years that you've been with us? I would say that print nights, as stressful as they are, will always hold a really special place in my heart. There's something about, you know, how silly everyone gets at about the 1 a.m. mark. There's something about pulling everything together for a deadline. The fear, but also the, wait, how can we do this better? How can we make this look better? Just the collaboration of, you know, anywhere from four to 20 people in a room all working towards one goal is something beautiful. And I think I'll always miss that camaraderie. Well, Addison, thank you for being our fearless leader this year and for your last appearance on the Cardinal Call. Thank you for having me, Hope. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. Thank you for joining us this semester. The Cardinal staff take some time off during the summer, but check us out at dailycardinal.com for breaking news stories. We also have a lot of great stories to read any time of the year under our in-depth news tab. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. When are we talking about? I started playing the Weekly feature contributor Jackie Sandberg waddles around Dane County, sharing how she has searched for a new home for an orphan gosling. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about geese. I actually really like geese. I think I start off all of my WORT segments talking about how I like a certain species or a certain animal, but for all of you listening, thanks for bearing with me. I wanted to share a really great story uh, from this week that I was personally involved in, and it has to deal with Canada geese probably the most common goose species that we see here in the Midwest and in the United States, because we got to wild foster a little tiny one, and it was the first goose of the spring season, and he was so darn cute. This fluffy little yellow, quacking, adorable goose showed up at the Wildlife Center because he was found as an orphan, and an orphaned goose is generally truly an orphan. If there's no parents nearby, there's no groups of other geese, So we knew he was a single alone and would have probably perished in the wild without the care of his parents, uh, as geese tend to be the type of species that, while they look fluffy in the beginning, they still can't really regulate their body temperature well as new hatchlings. And so they sit underneath mom to brood, especially when it's cold or at night. So being alone out in the wild, he's just high risk for predators to eat him, or he might die of hypothermia or other issues. So we were very lucky to have this bird admitted and able to uh, be examined at our wildlife center. Now we are in the midst of a highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak in our state and across the country. So we had to put him into a quarantine structure for us to be able to examine him. 
something that is far away on the property that is not located near other buildings and that we are able to triage effectively. Uh, so it's not exactly um, an easy thing to triage. I don't know for sure that the little gosling didn't have avian influenza, but he wasn't showing any abnormal signs, nothing neurologic, and he was honestly a very bright, vocal, happy, and healthy gosling with no broken bones, no wounds, and was just otherwise a little bit dehydrated. So that is the perfect candidate to wild foster. And I know I've talked about wild fostering in the past, and a lot of times we talk about it with raptors, so like great horned owls, barred owls, hawks, but we really do like to wild foster Canada geese because they tend to be in large gaggles and groups that are surrounding each other, and they are pretty good about accepting another one of their own, even though it might not be their baby or, you know, genetically, they have nothing to do with each other. Well, the fun part is staking out an area to figure out where are their geese, where are their babies, and are they the right size? So. Wild fostering takes a lot of just like scoping out environmentally, I guess, adequate areas so that they can hopefully be in the best type of location possible. That's not always easy. And we also have to go along permissions that we have for areas to release. So we were able to get permission uh, in um, multiple areas around Dane County, but one in particular worked really well. And when I arrived, I saw a couple of geese babies. Some were older, some were younger. And I was just so lucky to have stumbled upon a group that had the exact same size of tiny ducklings, uh, sorry, goslings that I was looking for. And I had to spend a good, you know, 10, 15 minutes kind of stalking this family of geese, which I felt really bad about. And I got some stares from the public like, what is this girl doing? You know, because they were on one side of an area of water and then to the other side. And so I kind of had to not chase them, but kind of steer them in the right direction, all while trying to hold this tiny little baby in my hands so that he could vocalize. The vocalization is probably one of the most important parts of the wild fostering because the goose visually probably sees that it's a gosling, but hearing it in a kind of an alarm call actually helps significantly to get the parents interested. So I hear I am holding this little duckling wearing, you know, PPE. So I've got my, my exam gloves and everything on and I'm just kind of holding him up and just showing him off to this family of geese. And the dad goose was getting pretty angry. Uh, there's mom and dad goose, but the dad tends to be a little bit more defensive uh, or protective of their flock. And so so he's hissing at me and he was doing some neck bobbing and he was, you know, not approaching me, but he was just like, who is this scary person? Why is she trying to approach me? And so it didn't work for the first couple of times that I kind of went around to show the baby to the geese. I went out on a dock and they were like, no, I'm going to swim this way. And I was like, okay, walk around a whole nother area and try again. And they kind of swim back another way. So it takes a lot of patience, um, observation. You really have to like make sure that the parents realize that, oh, I have a gosling and it's a baby and it pretend it's yours. And it did take by the time that I was on an opposite side of the water, then the parents came forward and started just yelling at me, basically honking like, why do you have this baby in your hands? So I had this baby in my hands. He was really like at that point, they were all honking and they were getting defensive. And I was like, OK, this is the right time to put this little gosling down and he's going to run off to his new adoptive parents and siblings. And it was perfect. Like he stumbled through some brush, but he did it quite well and ended up going right to the parents. And then they started protecting him. He gathered with the siblings and it was so cute to see those little gosling just like drinking the water and starting to peck along the ground. And I stayed for a while afterwards to 
you know, watch them. They came up onto some grassy hill areas. And so they were all following together. There was no harassment from the parents to this new bird at all. They just accepted it openly, which was really great. It doesn't always work, but when you kind of find the right group and you monitor those behaviors, you can kind of see what's going to work and what's not. And that just comes with time and experience as rehabilitators. So anyways, it was a happy, successful story. Post about it on our Facebook. So if you haven't checked us out at DCHS Wildlife Center, so that's Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center. We do have our public Facebook page and you can watch the really cute video of him running to the water. And then just know that we've got a lot of geese out and hatching right now. I wanted to share some information about them. You know, people sometimes think of them as nuisance birds. You know, they have really done very well since the Migratory Bird Treaty Act was passed, and that was in 1918, so it was a long time ago. But it just means that there's less, you know, mortality for a lot of species. And they are nesting in areas probably close to near water. They're not necessarily the same as some of our duck species who might be a couple miles from water. They really do like having a nest that is on top of plant materials. They will still pull out their downy feathers and body feathers to make it nice and insulated for their eggs. And generally, it's either on the ground, right next to water, or a lot of times they like to use muskrat mounds, actually. If you look around any of the marshy areas with some water and you see geese sitting on top of a mound, it's probably an old muskrat lodge or an active one, and that's where they feel most protected. So they're kind of sitting on top of their own little island, watching for predators around the nest, and the water helps fend off predators, actually, because not every predator is going to swim across to get a geese and their eggs. So it's pretty cool. Just note that they are aggressive, so don't approach any geese. If they're nesting, just leave them alone, leave them be, let them do their thing. And uh, consider calling us if you do find any orphans. So if you see a single or a couple of little ones that got separated from their family, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And we hope that you have enjoyed this segment of Wildlife Weekly. On this week's archival edition of Radio Astronomy, host Andrew Nine takes a look at what was once science fiction and is now a science reality. Well, sort of. A quick note, this episode was recorded in June of last year. Good evening, and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine. And tonight, I'd like to talk about interstellar ray guns. No, this isn't a special sci-fi episode. These are absolutely real. On May 17th, a team of astronomers led by Dr. Zheng Kao of the Chinese Academy of Sciences published in the journal Nature their discovery of 12 previously unknown cosmic pevatrons in the Milky Way, each capable of producing ultra-high-energy cosmic rays. There's a lot to unpack in that sentence, so let's break it down. To begin with, what is a cosmic ray? Cosmic rays are particles that travel through space at incredibly high velocities, often very near the speed of light. Most of these particles are single protons, though some are helium or even heavier atomic nuclei. They were first discovered more than 100 years ago in 1912, and have since been observed to constantly rain down on Earth's atmosphere. However, there is a lot we don't know about the origins of these cosmic rays. We are certain that these cosmic rays come from outside of our solar system since they come in from all directions. But pinpointing exact sources is extremely difficult. If we don't know where a cosmic ray comes from, that makes it much more difficult to explain how they get accelerated to such ridiculous speeds, which is something we'd really like to understand. 
When a particle travels close to the speed of light, its kinetic energy becomes extremely large because of special relativity. This also means that in order to accelerate a particle to these velocities, you have to dump in extraordinary amounts of energy. Particle physicists usually refer to energy in units of electron volts, or EV for short. One electron volt is not a lot of energy. So in particle physics, it's really easy to get lost in all of the big numbers that get thrown around. The largest particle accelerator on Earth, the Large Hadron Collider on the border between France and Switzerland, is capable of accelerating particles to about 13 tera electron volts, or 13 trillion electron volts. That is a 13 followed by 12 zeros. For reference, this is about the same as the kinetic energy of a flying mosquito. This may not sound remarkable, but a mosquito is made up of trillions upon trillions of atoms, and the LHC is accelerating single protons. With this much energy in play, the LHC can smash together protons in order to produce a wide variety of particles. But even the most powerful and expensive machine on the planet pales in comparison to the sources of cosmic rays in the galaxy. The kind of accelerators that Dr. Cao and his collaborators identified are capable of producing particles with energies of more than a peta-electron volt, or one quadrillion electron volts, a one followed by 15 zeros. This is 100 times more energy than even the LHC can produce. When the authors refer to a pevatron, they are referring to objects that can accelerate cosmic rays to these absurd energies. So, what are the 12 pevatrons that the team found? For the most part, we don't know. The team was only able to confidently identify one of the 12 sources, which they found to be the Crab Nebula, or the remains of a supernova that exploded about a thousand years ago in 1054. At the center lies a pulsar, or a rapidly spinning neutron star. A neutron star is one of the most extreme objects in the universe besides a black hole, packing the mass of about one or two times that of the entire sun into a sphere maybe 20 kilometers across, roughly the size of a city. That is so dense that it physically warps space around it. If you were to look at one side of a neutron star, you could actually see much of the other side at the same time because the space around it is so completely bent out of shape. Not that you could get all that close to a neutron star, since if you got within about a thousand kilometers of one, the intense magnetic fields would rip all of the atoms in your body apart. The neutron star in the Crab Nebula is also spinning really, really fast, completing one rotation in just 33 milliseconds. So it's not a total surprise that an object this extreme is capable of accelerating cosmic rays to peta-electron volt energies. What did come as a surprise to the team, however, is that another of the 12 sources they identified coincided with a region of active star formation in the constellation Cygnus. It's not entirely clear how this region is producing such high-energy cosmic rays, but the authors of the study suspect that young, massive stars in the region are to blame. Such massive stars, which could be a few tens or even possibly a hundred times the mass of our sun, produce really powerful winds, or streams of particles flowing out from their surfaces. If the winds of these stars were to interact with each other, that could also accelerate cosmic rays to peta-electron volt energies, 
though this is by no means a sure thing. Now that we have discovered these 12 new natural particle accelerators, however, we are one step closer to understanding how we get these high-energy cosmic rays and solving this century-old mystery. This is Andrew Nine from Radio Astronomy. Thank you for tuning in, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Sophie Leahy. Caitlin Davis had your weather. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Wiz Kids, Victor Calzoni engineered the show. Nate Weggy helped produce this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with Anuestro Patio. Good night. Mm-hmm.